Welcome to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast for fans who aren't ready to let go, and newcomers to the series who are ready to jump in. I'm Drew Shulman. And I'm Marie Vigourou. In this episode, we're diving into Supernatural Season 2, Episode 3, Bloodlust. Let's get this show on the road. Hi, everyone. Due to the nature of this episode, we will be discussing racism, homophobia, and misogyny, especially during our Critical Time segment. If that's not something that's in your headspace to listen to, feel free to come back to it later, or you can skip the segment altogether. We understand. Take care of yourself. That's what's important. Thank you. Well, bloodlust. (laughs) What did you think? What an amazing episode. I'm just going to say it now. I'm a huge fan of Sterling K. Brown. He can do no wrong in my books. He is just wonderful in every role he plays. And this is no exception. Like, it, it, I hate the fact that, and we'll get to this down the road, how he is portrayed in this episode, and I feel is given a very obvious villain motif, because I just want to love him so much that even when he's a villain, I'm just like, yeah, but it's Sterling. I mean, he plays an amazing villain, too. So I think that this was definitely something. And he excelled. I mean, he excels at everything, but, like, he excelled <laughs> at playing Gordon. You know, luckily, and I'm, I'm, I guess I'm, like, giving you, giving something away here, but, like, we will see Gordon come back. So this is not the last that we've seen of Gordon. No, there's no way they were going to leave a character this strong on the floor of a cabin tied to a chair forever. Yeah, no, for sure. Oh, he, he, he gets out of that cabin. Let me tell you. <laughs> I want him like once a season, just like I want a revenge episode of him trying to get back at the boys. Oh, <laughs> Be careful what you wish for. <laughs> but for now, are you ready for your two minute recap? Yes. Three, two, one, go. The boys are back at it. The Impala's back and ready. As Dean puts it, baby's back on the road. Uh, we are going after a new case. We have two decapitations and a bunch of mutilated cows. Seems satanic, No. They decide to go inspect and do a little bit of digging. And what? The things that were killed were vampires? (gasps) There must be another hunter in town. They do a little bit of hunting for a hunter. They find their hunter, who they think is a vampire at first, and meet our first real other hunter who's, like, young and their age and they can bond with, and Dean and him get along so well, but Sam's kind of like, I don't know. And we kind of see Dean use him as a crutch for his emotional instabilities, especially after John dies, even opening up to him in ways he could open to Sam. But they decided they're going to go after this nest of vampires that's there um, because Gordon is very much after vampires after one took his sister. And we then meet the vampires when Sam gets kidnapped by them. And it turns out they're good and also adorable. And it then becomes Dean's decision to go with his new best buddy, Gordon, and kill these things because there's no gray, only black and white. Or there's go with Sam and let these things go because maybe there's a little bit of good in everything. And ultimately, we do get a pretty nice ending for Dean, even though it's kind of sad and self-realization-y. It is just a good moment for him of growth, which is just so important. And uh, the boys have a new enemy, I guess, in Gordon. 30 seconds left on the clock. I think feel drew like perhaps we need to make this more challenging for you now <laughs> oh no <laughs> it's already so challenging to remember all the beats i already feel like i missed a dozen things because i was trying to beat a clock <laughs> i feel like i need the clock vi- i think i need to start doing the clock so i can see it in front of me so i know how much time i have did i miss any major beats or just any points you want to go over again kind of uh, highlight some things with me we meet Gordon. Love Gordon. This is also the first time that we refer to the Impala as baby. Which I think is a very interesting name for the Impala. Oh, okay. There is a very common tendency in men naming their cars, especially giving them feminine names. Baby is not really a name, more so a nickname. I'm just going to be very upfront and say it's kind of gender neutral. Aw, Dean. And like, I legitimately looked for it because I was like, you know what? Like, I'm willing to bet even with all of the lenses through which we view Dean and his sexuality, I would not be shocked if even in that the car was still considered female just because that's a tendency in male characters. At no point in that scene, and I have been checking for it, 
he never refers to the Impala with a gender. So he he eventually does. He eventually refers to the Impala as she and her. But it's true that baby is quite gender neutral. I had never noticed that. Actually, fun tidbit. Eric Kripke, at the very beginning, whenever they were referring to the car, would refer to it as Metallicar. He was probably like the only one who actually enjoyed that. (laughs) Sorry for the shade. Oh, what a good name. I love it. Oh, no, really? (laughs) Because it's so bad. It is really bad, right? And so anyway, baby caught on. And so now whenever you talk about the boys and baby, it means the Impala. So that's why like, I was so excited to finally hear them refer to her as baby. There's also a bit of weird symbolism in that this is like kind of the car's rebirth. Like, this is this is effectively a new Impala. Like, yes, it's the bones and the spirit of the original, but like... Like, ship of Theseus here, for those of you who know what I'm referring to, how many parts were replaced, and is it still the same Impala if you replace all the parts? The the song that is playing is Back in Black, right? So it's there's definitely a lot of questions to be asked about that. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, like, I, I, think, I think even now I'm going a little too inside of it. I think reality is it is the same Impala. Baby is just a cute name. But I think it is also cool to think that this is kind of Dean's rebuilding of it. This is now really his car, less than it was before, where it was a car that was gifted to him. Now it's his car. He's built it. This is also, I think, our first time meeting like a a good quote-unquote monster. Yeah, I had that same thought. I was wondering if ever we had met one where we didn't really get the opportunity to discuss it ultimately you're right it very much is the first time we're seeing a a a monster of the week choose to not be a monster essentially it is also the first time that we hear someone label dean as a killer which i will argue yes with an asterisk because he labels himself a killer once before yes i think it's notable because it's the first time that It comes externally. Yeah, I think that's the more important aspect of this. I think I'm playing the semantics game for fun. But yes, it's the first time someone else does say it. And very nonchalantly, too. Like, And you know what? This is something that is going to become very important in the way that Dean understands himself and behaves himself also in public. It's going to be important, I think, to track that because... Until the very end of the series, Dean truly struggles with who he is and how he sees himself, but also like how others perceive him. And he has a very big tendency of like internalizing what other people think of him. And this is one of those times. Yeah, poor Dean. Shall we move into story time? We shall. So again, if we go like a little bit chronologically here, we've talked about this before, but you know, there's Back in Black playing, uh, the Impala is all fixed up, the boys are driving along, they're happy, they're enjoying the drive. Like, it almost feels like, you know, and I know that grief is not linear, but it, it sort of feels like they're kind of riding a positive wave at the moment. Like they're able to kind of cope with their grief and it seems like they're doing well and coping healthily with it (laughs) yeah which gets shattered very quickly but it does give us that nice kind of sense of like things are back on track which i think helps deliver the message of the episode even more so than had they not done this and it is just you know what it's a good moment as an audience member to really sort of just enjoy them to see them again their brotherly bond that they can connect in this way that they can have fun that they can be jovial you know it's been a while we haven't had this in quite some time i know i know we were due we were due for like a a, a speck of happiness right <laughs> we were due yeah. the entire episode starts to about the time they get to the bar and start kind of asking questions is uh, even going to the morgue and discovering it's a vampire like that entire like get me a bucket like what for i'm gonna be sick like there's kind of just that like brotherly like pushing the other one to like go a little further like it's almost like the the um the pranks again it just feels fun 
it feels fun. And they're playing dress up, you know, like they're dressing up as, uh, yeah, as like reporters to go see the sheriff. And then after that, as morgue attendants uh, to go to the morgue. And so there's clearly like a playfulness to them. And then, like you said, boom, we find out that they are hunting a vampire in this case. And that is how we know that this is a Dean episode. <laughs> I would say I kind of caught that a few seconds earlier when Dean very clearly stares at someone's butt when he's running down a hallway. <laughs> Who is that? The morgue attendant? Is that what it is? Yeah, when the, when he tells the morgue attendant like this, the the other doctor's back from vacation and he's yelling for you and he runs. I'm gonna be very very frank. I have watched someone walk down a hallway before with that same intent, and it is a very different thing to like watch someone leave a room versus like that slow look bottom up like you were checking someone out, honey. Oh, those acting choices. Anyway. Yes, so there you go. This is how we know that this is going to be a Dean episode because he is out there checking out both men and women and we are talking about vampires. Moving on, uh, a little bit fast forward, right, to when uh, Dean, Sam, and Gordon are talking uh, at the bar after, you know, like the big confrontation, like, show me your mouth, blah, blah, blah. So Gordon is talking about John and he goes, you know how hunters are. Dean goes, actually, no, we don't. And then Gordon replies, well, there's a lot that, I guess there's a lot that your dad didn't tell you. You know, that whole exchange for me was kind of an insight into how isolated the boys were growing up. Not only did they didn't get to make lasting friends in school, but they also didn't have many adults in their lives either. You know, we know that they that they had Bobby at one point, but that they had a, that there was a falling out with John. Uh, we know that there were a couple of people who were there it comes down to the fact that John truly cut them off from the world. And I'm wondering, and this is one of those moments where I, I assume the answer may come down the road, but was this John imparting on them the, his kind of, you know, not keeping connections because you never know, or was this him trying to keep them safe from the hunter community as a whole because he didn't mesh very well in it? You know, I think it's a little bit of A, a little bit of B. I think that John's trauma response was hyper-independence in the sense of like, if I want to survive and if I want everybody to survive, like it needs to be on me and we can't trust anybody. I think that's where he was. And in the process, he ended up alienating his children and like poorly socializing his children. Is it's, it's more of his trauma rubbing off on them. It's his choices affecting them. Yeah. I think so. And this is like sort of creating a whole, like it opens up a wider theme that I think we'll be able to talk about at some point, but they're basically discovering their chosen family, like their, their community, their hunting community as adults. And like, there's a lot of themes I think that can be discussed here. Like, what is it like to discover your community as an adult versus like growing up with it? Like, what's it like to discover your culture or or to discover things that you didn't know of as a child, as an adult? And I can't imagine like the, the feeling of loss that they must be feeling, that there was a, a found family out there for them, like a community for them to rely on that they never got to take advantage of or that they never got to truly experience as children when they would have needed it the most. And the way that they're talked about, I mean, the way Gordon talks about them and even last episode, uh, the way Ellen talks about them and yeah, we get her little cameo in this episode, but it really like it shows that there's, a, there's this wide network of hunters who all know each other and information spreads through them and there's these you know like watering holes they all kind of meet up at like her bar the roadhouse and just i want them to get involved like this is me this is me being that camp counselor seeing the kid who gets left out and kind of like is isolated because he's the weird kid and i know like you are gonna blossom in college when you meet the other weird theater kids like you just need to like i just want them to walk into a bar and meet like 30 other hunters who are not Gordon, unfortunately, even though I love him, because like that network, making connections, you know, learning new tricks of the trade, I feel like would just be so good for them, but it would also be way too easy. I don't know if it would be too easy on the contrary, because to live in community is not easy and they're not used to it. And so there would be a lot of challenges there, but that's a whole other conversation. Just want them to have everything. But instead, let's talk about the moment where Dean kills, brutally murders that vampire. I feel uneasy that it didn't strike me as that gory of a kill. 
like ultimately you're right it was like he ends with like it's the one of the first times we've seen one of the boys covered in like another thing's blood really and sam's face and just like shock at seeing it but i think for me it's like i've rationalized it so much of like you knew it was a vampire you knew it was either it or you this was very much like you know, the demon fighting Sam at the uh, last season all over again. There was not really a, like, okay, I can just walk away now and it won't come after me. Like, it's going to get up and attack you the second you turn your back on it. And you had a free kill, essentially, and you had no other option. Yes, ultimately, with the knowledge we have now, they could have spoken to it and stopped the whole thing. But, I mean, that's a, again, like, coulda, shoulda, woulda. But, like, it didn't it didn't phase me the way that I realized it should have phased me. And I think maybe part of that was the goal of the story. I'm not quite sure because it's, it's interesting because again, like throughout the series, there are moments that are absolutely much more brutal than this, but clearly the production made it so that they wanted to send a message to us. Like this is a difficult, like brutal kill. And we want you to feel shocked. Now, whether or not we do feel shocked is a whole other story, but Clearly, that was the intent in how they were doing this. Like you said, the look on Sam's face clearly says something. The, like, nobody's home look on Dean's face also. Like, there's clearly something, like, some message that's being sent this way. Using the knowledge that I have of later on, I notice that Dean gets increasingly brutal and aggressive when he can't control the things in his life. And the emotions are just bubbling up. And that's when we see him like commit those very brutal things. I keep saying brutal, but I mean, it is. It was like. It's the most accurate word to describe it, I think, in this case. And yeah, I think ultimately the point is very clearly conveyed, especially afterwards at the bar when they're having a drink and Sam kind of has to walk away. Like, even if I didn't feel it in the moment, the message was very clearly conveyed. And then, I mean, we're there, but that entire conversation after Sam walks away. Yes. Oh, my God. Please. Okay, so tell me, tell me, <sighs> what did you think about that? Like, Dean talking about killing a monster at age 16. Like, talk to me about that. I need to hear this from your perspective. That entire conversation, it just seems, it, it just paints a really difficult picture of Dean to realize that at such a young age, he has gone through what he's gone through and has accepted it. Like, it's one thing to have a traumatic experience and talk about it and have someone who can listen to you and can commiserate, like, you know, Gordon so clearly can. But to have that moment of realization and stick to it is just so... Oh, heavy is the only word that comes to mind, but it just feels so... I can't find the right word, but like, I feel like anyone who watches the scene knows what I'm feeling right now. Maybe you'll have the word that I'm missing. Cause I just keep wanting to go to heavy the same way you want to keep going to brutal. It's just, it's the word. Yeah, but it is heavy, Drew. You're right. I'm wondering if he truly accepted it or if he adapted in order to survive. Now there's the part of me that wants to go. Is there really a difference? I know there is, but at the end of the day, does he? Well, I think at the end of the day, literally at the end of the episode, we find out that there is a difference and that he is starting to make that difference. Like, I think that the whole goal, like part of the goal of this episode or like the story that's being told in this episode is the realization of the harm that John has done. Oh my God, you're right. <laughs> I'm just, I'm like re, like I'm just now, you're right. That is such a clear image this very much is him realizing exactly what i just asked you he thinks he's accepted it and now he's going or was i just playing along to survive and now i can make my own choice that i'm an educated adult who has more experience because drew think about this so dean was 16 years old when this story happened sam would have been 12 okay they were both with john sam was in the back seat of the car what exactly, what options did Dean have to resist any of this? So it's it's really hard to say that he's accepted it when he doesn't have another option. Like he he adapted as best as he could in order to survive, in order to like to 
to cope, but like, I'm not sure that he accepted it. And I think that we're seeing that at the end of the episode. Exactly. He thinks he accepted it. He thinks he was in control that moment and he chose to go through with it. And it's only at the end of the episode when he makes the choice to let Lenore go, when he decides to side with Sam, he's basically reliving that moment with Gordon as a stand-in for John and saying, no, we're doing this my way. Sorry, this is Monkey Paw 101. This is the, I made a wish at the crossroads, which was that we get more time for Dean to handle his emotions and feelings and learn. And we're getting it. It just makes me so, like, mad isn't the word, but just like... Crushed. Mm. <laughs> Crushing you. you emotionally. Yeah, I feel that. Yep. Um, My heart. Remember when I told you, be careful what you wish for? Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. And like, again, like if we can just come back to Dean real quick here, like, you know, he's like I said, he's 16. Clearly he can't. And he says it right. He can't relate to kids his age. He's been socially isolated by his father because of the violence and trauma that he's been su- subjected to. He, and he doesn't know how to reach out for help. And, and he says it himself. He's like, I can't talk to Sammy about that. I got to keep my game face on. And like that just like reinforces the idea that the boys were isolated not only from others around them, but also from each other within the family unit. I mean, yeah, like it was that moment too in that conversation when he says, like, I can't talk to Sammy about this. I have to keep on my game face. And I was just like, we know, but you don't have to. You shouldn't have to. But it's the only thing he knows, right? And that's why he says that. But I agree with you. He doesn't have to. No, he has to learn that that's also wrong. And that he's allowed to be his brother and not just his guardian. (sighs) Did you catch, like, just, just like a tiny little thing before we move on to something a bit more substantial? Like, did you notice when Lenore says, like, once you hunters have the scent, you'll keep tracking us? Oh, yeah, no, that was one of those, like, I have the recording of that, and that was me just like, yes, yes, that amazing, oh my god, making the metaphor that the hunters are just as bad as the monsters they hunt, because they don't give up, and they just go after them, and they don't even ask questions, like, oh my god, yes. This is, like, I'm a fan of Monster of the Week content, I love shows that have those great villains that are just one-offs like this, and my favorite thing in every one of those serializations is when they have that moment of, are we also the monster? Oh, yes. Excellent. Mm, Delicious. Yes. And we're moving into that very nicely because, like, there obviously, like, is something in the... Because we know... Okay. Actually, wait. Let's move into... (laughs) No, it's because... So, okay. I mean, you know, right? (laughs) Like, as you know, like, when I prepare my notes, I make sure, like, I know where where we're going to go <laughs> with the notes. And, like, we're just moving in really nicely. So let's talk about Sam. It was evident for me in that conversation about, you know, there's no gray. There's just a, there's a black and white. There's that's, that's our role. And as I'm sitting there watching, waiting for Dean's response, I'm just thinking, what does it say about Sam? Is Sam black or white? Or is Sam in the gray? What are you going to do, Dean? How do you answer, Dean? Exactly. And this starts, so like this is like the the part that kind of like hits you over the head with it. But like there's little hints to that earlier. Earlier at the bar, Gordon says to Dean like, your brother, he's not like us. He's different. (gasps) What does that mean? There was like a second where I was like, what do you mean by different? Like, you you just mean that he's not a killer or he's not as, like, you know, hard-boiled as you, right? You're not hinting at anything, Gordon, are you? If you're asking me what I think Gordon meant, I really do think that he probably just meant, like, he's not a hunter like us, kind of, like, more in that vein. But... Yeah, that's it's very much what I stuff. meant, but I think, yes, us as the viewer. There you go. So it's up to us to kind of, like, put that there, because that's... What do you think Dean is thinking? Mm-hmm. You know, they've already had this conversation. Dean and Sam had this conversation during Nightmare. And now we're having it again with a third party who doesn't know all the details. And Dean is stuck in the middle. So when Dean and Sam, like, argue about the vampires and whether or not they should, like, go and kill them or let them go, Sam is obviously arguing not to kill them. And I would tend to think that it's probably because he sort of sees himself in them. But Dean hasn't 
quite connected the dots there. I don't think Dean sees it. I don't think he wants to see it. And I think that there's something very purposeful about that. Like he needs simple things because it really takes like finding out that Gordon actually killed his sister after she was turned for Dean to kind of like realize that because you asked a very interesting question about, you know, how is, is Sam part of like this, the, the black or white or the shades of gray So, like, we know that Sam has supernatural powers of some sort. Could Dean kill him if if push came to shove? You're right. Dean Dean 100% connects the dots by that point. And that's his moment when he realizes that this person no longer saw their sibling in this creature, didn't even give them the chance, just jumped the gun, literally, or knife, I guess. And he asked, he's already had this conversation with Sam back in Nightmare when we first had that moment. He's already reckoned with that thought. And here he is being presented again and seeing this person who he thought he could connect with making a choice that he knows he would never make. Oh, the layers of this episode. I know. (laughs) We're not done. (laughs) And like, I already loved this episode. This is just, this is climbing up. This is going to take over Scarecrow soon. Yeah, I find that narratively, like, this episode is absolutely fantastic. I have so many critical issues with it, though, like, and I'm very excited to get to those. But narratively, this episode always blows my mind whenever I I watch it. Now, I have a question for you, though, or, like, something that I have been wondering. Okay, so as a bisexual person uh, living or who grew up in an unstable and probably homophobic home, like... Dean would have had to be a good judge of character when it comes to, like, who he can trust with his sexuality and with, like, some parts of himself. Like, because he would have had to make sure that whatever he said or did didn't get back to his dad. And I would, like, tend to think that this would be a transferable skill. And we do see that Dean is a good judge of character from what we've seen so far and later on. So why did he trust Gordon? Like, was it self-sabotage or, like, was it just grief? Like, did that cause him to let his guard down? Like, I don't understand why he opened up to Gordon. Like, why he was such a poor judge of character when it comes to Gordon. I can speak to this one very clearly, actually, I think. Oh, please go, because I, I don't I don't have an answer. It's acceptance. It is clearly acceptance. It's the first time Dean has met somebody who he can open up to in a certain way and be so clearly accepted and vindicated in his actions and in his style that we have never up to this point had a moment where Dean could turn to somebody, anybody and go, yeah, no, I stuck it with a silver tipped arrow, then took it out back and burnt it. Like, Oh, what a great hunter I am and receive a pat on the back from someone who goes, I get it. And I appreciate it. It's that mentality you see in films and movie and maybe even in life if you've been through it where, you know, a kid does something, you know, inappropriate, like makes an inappropriate joke, but gets the approval of all the cool kids or the, you know, the bad kids and then goes, well, I'll keep doing that. You know, they don't want to. they, They know what they're doing is wrong, but they're getting acceptance from their peers who they need. This is literally the cool kid saying, you're also cool. Keep being cool. It's the first time he's been able to open up about a portion of his life, which has otherwise had to be kept secret from everybody and be outright accepted and not only accepted, encouraged and applauded. Dean. 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 (laughs) Poor Dean. You need to open up and be accepted, but for different things. Okay, so let's move on to that final scene, like when the boys are talking together, because we have that moment that we've hinted at a couple of times already in this episode, like where Dean is questioning the way that John raised them. And he uses the phrase like, what if we killed things that didn't deserve it? So I don't know if you caught it, but whenever they had talked about vampires before, they had always referred to vampires as vampires. But in The moment where Dean and Gordon are in hand-to-hand combat after Sam leaves, Gordon actually calls vampires fangs. He does a few times during the episode. Yeah, Yeah? I noticed it. Yeah. So, so there's, there's that. It's not, it's not a one-time thing. It's yeah, he, he does it a few times. Yeah. So it's there. And I don't know. I made a parallel because I've watched a lot of True Blood also in my day. 
And Dean says, the way that dad raised us to hate those things, and I hate them. And he's referring to vampires, to monsters. He's referring to fangs, okay? And again, like, so I don't want to leave this in the subtext, and I really want to bring it to light. So here's what I'm getting at. Like, remembering that historically, like, vampires are stand-in for queer people, and we've already discussed this in previous episodes, and even in this one, that John would have probably had a negative homophobic reaction if he found out about Dean being bisexual. So, like, when Dean is talking about his dad raising him to hate fangs, I really can't help but think that maybe he's not just talking about vampires here, but also queer people. And I mean, like, for those who perhaps haven't connected the dots, like, I'm reading fangs as the homophobic F-slur. We're seeing Dean not only question his approach to hunting, but also his perception of queer people and his perception of himself. No, I agree. And I think even just in the wording he chooses, because he doesn't, he doesn't say fangs. He doesn't say vampires. He doesn't say creatures or monsters or spirits or demons he says them like we have heard him use hundreds of terms to describe the things they hunt but them never and it feels like a very conscious choice by dean to do that because he isn't just referring to monsters i think it is very clear when he says them he's referring to all of the things john taught them to hate shall we move into critical time I think we shall. Wonderful. This episode was written by Sarah Gamble, who also gave us Dead in the Water, Faith, Nightmare, and Salvation. And it was directed by Robert Singer, who also directed Phantom Traveler and Salvation. Let's talk about race in this episode, because this is one of the very few episodes where we have a Black character who is better developed than just speaking a few lines here and there. And I think it's very important that we start looking at that. So what are other Black characters that we've had so far on the show that you remember? Uh, Dean had a girlfriend or an ex whose name I've already forgotten because she was in the show for so little. Right, Cass. Yeah, we had that whole moment. Uh, And then I feel like we've seen maybe a Black cop here or there. But I I think the point you were trying to bring up is that we've never really had a Black character who has been developed. This is our first three-dimensional character with a backstory and history. I mean, like we've like we've discussed, we're so incredibly lucky that Sterling K-, K. Brown was the person to play this character because obviously like he gave Gordon such such depth. Like he worked with what he had and oh my god. <laughs> like wow. Does he work it? I want to talk a little bit about the cold open, where we see Gordon, a black man. Now, we don't know that it's Gordon at the time, but we're able to piece it together later. He's killing He's killing what we now know to be a vampire. But at the time, she's not in vamp face. Been watching a lot of Buffy lately, so she's not in vamp face. So essentially, what we're seeing is a black man killing a white woman. And I kind of want to bring attention to that because black men and black boys black children keep getting prosecuted, incarcerated, executed, and even murdered for things that white women have said they have done to them, even if that wasn't true. And I think that the the most striking story of that is Emmett Till. I think it's really necessary to say that because at the end of the day, this what this episode is doing is perpetuating the idea that black men are predators that black men are are morally deficient in some way because they can't see the shades of gray in situations. I just think that it's incredibly irresponsible storytelling to do something like this. And I want to toe a very important line here because I'm not saying that black characters should not be villains or should not be put as villains. I think we should have a lot of black villains. But I feel like before we do that, we also need to kind of say that in this show, there are Black characters who are not villains. And we haven't quite done that. We've done it a little bit here and there, but not enough to really warrant what we're seeing in Gordon. I feel like the argument that's always made here, just to address what I know some people are thinking, because it's something that I wrongly thought for a long time, was you have to open up all roles. You have to You know, you can't say that every time you cast a black person in a thing, they have to be the protagonist, the hero, or a good guy. You said it very well. 
they should be allowed to play any role. But when a show has done literally nothing with any black character to have our first actual mainstay of the series character who seems to be more than just a set dressing piece to be the villain immediately is not handling it correctly. Especially when we're looking at this, and that's that's why this segment of, of our podcast is so important to me. It's that we're we need to realize when we're watching media that media does not exist in a vacuum. Not only does it affect, not only is it affected by our daily lives and it reflects that back to us, but it also affects the way that we perceive certain people, etc. Like I said, I find this absolutely irresponsible storytelling. And to add on to that, we had this conversation with Carol when they were on the show that it would be really dangerous for a for black men to drive around America with an arsenal in the trunk. But Gordon does it again. Like this, the the the, pol the stories of police brutality that we're hearing a lot of right now are not new. I want to make that very clear. They're not new. It's just that we taught we white people talk about it more today, and we're more sensitized to it today than we were 15 years ago. So this would have been incredibly risky for him to do anyway. So it shows like the complete disconnect of the writers writing this character moving through this world that doesn't trust him, that hates him already. And to think that he would be able to navigate that world with an arsenal in the trunk seems incredibly naive and completely disconnected from the reality of Black people in America, even 15 years ago. Yeah, something that's come up a lot. So I've mentioned before, I do voice acting and something I see a lot when we talk about opening up opportunities for people of color, for non-binary, for LGBTQ just to open up the roles, it's not just a matter of saying anyone can apply. It's also writing characters to be different ethnicities. When you look at a character like Gordon and go, let's just hypothetically put any white actor in that role. Does it change the character? And if your answer is no, they'd be the exact same. Then something's wrong with the writing. I absolutely agree. I, I think the best way to think of it is being black should not be his character but being black should be part of his characteristics. And it'll it'll affect the way that, and I mean, that's also something to, to kind of keep in mind, right? Like Gordon was, grew up as a black man or grew up as, as a black child and then became a black man. And so like he has experiences that white men cannot understand. This idea when his sister vanished, he had to be homeless for a while, like, you know, going going around and trying to figure out what happened. I mean, can you imagine being a black man accused of, like, kidnapping or murder? It's It's very unforgiving. I mean, I'm willing to bet, like, this again seems like one of those moments where this was written as a, not intentionally a white character, but was written without ethnicity in mind. Because you... Look at the way cops treat people of color today and know that it was just as bad, if not worse, 15 years ago. If there was even an inkling that this black young boy may have been responsible for the disappearance, death, murder, or whatever of the sister, he would have been locked away immediately. He wouldn't have been given the opportunity to go live on the streets like some privileged white kid probably would have. Like, to me, this, again, just goes to the point of there's inconsistencies in the writing of Gordon's character because when Gordon's character was written, it was written as a either completely ambiguous to race or ethnicity. And then when they cast Sterling as a black man, did not think to go back and make any adjustments to the character. Let's keep that in mind as we, because so Sarah Gamble will become the showrunner of Supernatural uh, for seasons six and seven. And so it'll be really interesting to see how she handles race in those uh, in those two two seasons. That That's one thing that doesn't quite get better on the show. Like I'm telling you right away that the way that race is handled is just really quite poor. It gets, it does get a teensy bit better, but even then, like the attempts are just... But like just to any fans who are listening to this and maybe not feeling comfortable with this, this isn't an exclusive supernatural thing. This is most television in this era. Just one last thing about Gordon, because I want to 
And that sort of ties into the next point about Lenore. Gordon doesn't just kill vampires. Like, he takes pleasure in torturing them. Yeah, and I like how the show kind of tries to pass it off as like, oh, I'm getting information out of her. Well, there you go. And so, like, to me, again, like, that vilifies. And and again, like, this, this, this creature, this vampire... like only very briefly has her vamp face on it just looks like he's brutalizing a white woman again (sighs) speaking of brutalizing white women can we talk about lenora being brutalized as a plot device and how that ties into another show where it also happens yeah no yeah i mean it's a trope we've touched on before it is the idea of women being tortured, brutalized, murdered purely to move a story forward to act as motivation for another character, usually a male character. Buffy actually is a female character because she's in a lesbian relationship. So I'm not going to give it any points off for doing that, but it's still the same trope. It is someone suffering, being killed, being tortured, being murdered, any of those to further a plot line. You know, it was just interesting to me to see that happen to this particular actress twice yeah it's like it's a weird like it's to use one of my favorite quotes of all time if i had a nickel for every time amber benson was brutalized and murdered to further a plot i'd only have two nickels but it's weird that it happened twice right i mean she's not murdered in this one but she's certainly brutalized and yeah like it it just it makes me sad and it's interesting because with everything else about race and about queerness like I barely even clocked that. You're the one who kind of brought it up. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's true. That happens here, too. And again, like if we're going to talk a little bit about queerness in critical uh, time, the use of Fang as a derogatory way to refer to a vampire, like obviously for me, like that was so I understand that True Blood as a TV show came out after Supernatural. But I couldn't help but think of that, right? I, I mean, in True Blood, they're they're trying to make an intentional point about, you know, like the 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 protest signs of like God hates fangs, which clearly again like is a a direct I can't imagine that this was unintentional in any way. Like there's no way that you decide to call like your queer coded like monster fang and not realize what you're doing. Right? Yeah, because, like, vampires have had many nicknames over the years. There's been many ways to play. Vamps. Like, there's just so many bloodsuckers. Like, like, look at Buffy. Buffy is a show that pretty much only had vampires as a major villain. Their Monsters of the Week were vampires 50% of the time, and they never referred to them as fangs that I can recall. But that show also wasn't really leaning on vampires for queer coding. No, it was a whole other thing for them. And a whole other yeah. conversation for us. <laughs> I look forward to it. Vamp chat. Vamp chat. So this week we got a couple of tweets from uh, Twitter user SureFineWhat. So she sent us a few tweets uh, over a few days, actually. So we're going to... We're going to go through those tweets because we think that they're all very nicely related and we'd like to respond to them as a whole. So, Drew, would you like to get us started? I would love to. So, at SureFineWhat says, As I thought about the final scene, I realized that the boys find John in an apartment building called Sunrise. They go in, dress as firemen. What is the sun? A giant ball of fire. What is happening with the rising sun in the morning? It is shedding light upon the world. What do they find this sunrise? Dean learns to recognize a truth about his dad, that he will not accept anything except complete dedication to the goal, no matter who has to die. Hmm. Dean. And then she goes on. I listened to the Shadows episode again. The episode where the boys first find John. He's in shadow and turns to them into the light. Then in the finale, they find him again in sunrise and take him to a dark cabin where he's too nice because he's possessed by the darkness. Ah! Is Kripke trying to tell us that John is not the guiding light that Dean thinks he is? Okay, I love this because this is just bolstering my continued theory that John was painted to be this godlike character to Dean and Dean is now losing faith and realizing that his dad wasn't everything he was cracked up to be. And this has been my like, my like, 
poster board on the wall with the red thread trying to prove this point, and this is like the ultimate like puzzle piece I needed. So thank you. But yes, it's amazingly nice little like tidbits of metaphor and simile to really just paint the picture of bringing things to light. I mean, Sunrise, like, I know we talked about Sunrise in the episode and how like it was like the choice of name. But the fact that Sunrise is literally just the sun coming out and shining light on things is so apt for this entire moment. I I don't think we I don't think I don't think I clocked that anyway. So thank you for for pointing that out. So it's what's really interesting to me about this tweet is that it also touches upon what we've been talking about in this episode. The idea that Dean is now starting to to look back on his childhood memories with hindsight. And he's starting to kind of like realize that the way that John cared big air quotes for him as a child is not the way that he would have cared for a child in his care. And I think, so yes, I certainly think that this is very emotional and very challenging for Dean to kind of like go through and realize. And so, yeah, I absolutely do think that the show is trying to tell us that John is not the guiding light that Dean thought that he was. I completely agree with both you and Surefine What here. I, I think it is very clear, and I, I think something you just said now triggered it for me, but I think the next step is not just realizing that John was not what he thought he was, but that he can't be John 2.0 to Sam. And that he wasn't also John 2.0 to Sam. No, but I feel like there's still a lot of John in Dean yes. in the way that he treats Sam that he needs to get over. That's fair. That's definitely a fair observation here. Shall we head on down to the crossroads? We shall. Do you want to get us started? Sure. I am I'm very torn because I really liked this episode and I think I only love it more after having discussed it with you all throughout all this. I think I'm still going to stick to my guns and go with the crossroads deal I made, although it now hurts more, which I think is kind of the point. Mm. I love Gordon. I love Sterling K. Brown. I love his character of Gordon. I love the character of Gordon that we got, despite the flaws we've discussed. I think we needed a little less Gordon and a little more Lenore. Yeah, I. you know what? I absolutely agree with that. So I feel like there's always... So whenever I do these crossroad deals, I want to come to like why or what the big thing I want to get is. And I think I wanted the weight of Dean's decision to mean more. And I think I would have liked to see him wrestle with that a bit more. And I feel like that would have come through meeting Lenore in better circumstances. Mm-hmm. Like, I think I would have loved, like, here, putting my writing hat on for a second. Uh, they get to the cabin and encounter Lenore before Gordon does. Because Gordon gets lost and can't find the way. Through whatever circumstances, Sam is taken out of the picture. He's, you know, like, he gets injured. They get into a fight, whatever the case is. And after he gets injured and starts bleeding, the vampires go a little crazy. And they then, like, stop themselves. And that's when Dean goes, like, whoa, you can be good? I don't get it. Like, let that be the moment that he has the realization and have him work with Lenore to, like, get Sam inside and, like, bandaged up. And then realize, like, oh, shit, Gordon's going to be here any minute. He'll definitely follow our tracks. I got to protect you now. And then have our confrontation with Gordon get those same points out. But it would have given Lenore and the other vamps a little more time to shine. So I I certainly appreciate that. And I mean, my crossroads is very similar. But as you know, I'm always contradicting myself whenever I do a crossroads. So I'll I'll get it out of the way right now. (laughs) Go for it. So, I mean, on my end... I would have also liked for Dean to have a little bit more time to make a decision with regards to killing Lenore or not. However, I'm also glad in a way that there wasn't because he, basically what we saw is Dean being able to find the humanity in something that wasn't immediately human to him very quickly. And I think that that's something really quite beautiful about Dean that even though he's very realistic and sometimes even pessimistic, like I truly think that he believes in people, or at least he sees them for what they are. He was able to know right away that Lenore did not deserve to be killed, and I think that that says something about Dean, that we would not necessarily have had if he had had more time, or if 
she had done something to quote unquote earn her freedom because in this case like she didn't get a chance to prove truly that she was good it was kind of a like spur of the moment thing like it, it so there was very little proof to show that she was actually not a an evil vampire so i i'm kind of glad that that happened that way but again like my crossroads stands like i wish that there had been more time <laughs> for that yeah, no, you're right. I think more Lenore time, more time with them, kind of getting to know them, even just for us as an audience, maybe even just with Sam, would have been nice. You're right, yeah. And I do see your point, you're right. I think the fact that she didn't earn her freedom, but Dean saw it in her, in her actions, in such desperate times. Yeah. No one should have to earn freedom. You deserve freedom no matter what. I would definitely... Not ditch Gordon Time because I love Gordon Time, frankly. Like I know, right? like, I know. Every moment with him is so juicy. Uh, yeah. So I would actually scrap the scene with the sheriff. Like as humorous as it was, we had already had like that scene. Basically, the goal was to kind of show, like we said earlier, like the playfulness of what the boys were 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 doing. But we already saw that when they were in the Impala, and then we also saw it at the morgue. And so to me, that scene was just like, okay, we, we get the message. Like, we get it. They're having fun. They're enjoying themselves. Yeah, I feel like that scene was a bit superfluous. Like, we didn't really need it. It wasn't that memorable. Yeah, I think all it really does is it kind of sets up the whole cow thing with, like, the, the cow mutilations being, like, un the, the cops don't think it's related because, well, you know, cows just do that sometimes with surprisingly gory detail for a sheriff to give to two reporters <laughs> like you and it's weird because they even seem a little phased by that description and like they've seen worse i imagine <laughs> but they hear this description from a sheriff and they were like uh what yeah there you go i feel like that could have been very well explained very quickly by gordon saying oh the cops won't look into it because they think that it's just not th them dying of natural causes or them getting tipped over you know like it would have been a very easy like one-liner to explain that but instead like we're investing all this time with this sheriff and i'm just not sure what the return on investment is there no that you're right that it definitely feels like a like it it, it it had its moment and it was relevant to the plot but that plot point could have been given like you said by gordon so easily You've been listening to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast produced by Rochelle Castellano, hosted by Drew Shulman and myself, Marie Vigourou. This week, we'd like to thank Twitter user SureFineWhat for her tweet. Help us keep the conversation going. You can send us a voice recording at carryingwayward at gmail.com. And you can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube using at carryingwayward. Make sure to leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd really love to be able to grow our community. And we'll see you next week. Carry on our wayward friends. Mwah, mwah. I don't know what you mean by race. <laughs> well, like race? Oh, race. Wow. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm going to go lie down in the middle of a highway. I'll see you later. <laughs> mm. <laughs> mm. Okay.